0: this podcast is brought to you by australia's lgbtqia community media organization joy keep joy on air by becoming a member a subscriber or donate head to joy.org.au joy
1: a diverse sound for a diverse community
0: this program contains themes of an adult nature Word for Word is an in-depth look into the lives of real people, which means this episode may contain explicit accounts of real-life events, including alcohol and drug use. The language used at times may cause some offence, but
1: has been left uncensored due to the accuracy of the story. No offence is intended, and we hope you enjoy the program.
0: Across Australia on the Community Radio Network to over 70 community
1: stations around the nation, this is Word for Word. Coming to you from Australia's LGBTI radio station, Joy. Welcome, family and friends, fans and fiends, to today's edition of Word for Word. I want to thank you for tuning in today. I am Benjamin Norris, and it's simply a delight to continue to work on this show for the Joy Network, which has already featured some of the community's strongest voices. In the tradition of this ongoing program, I continue to look at powerful stories and insights into the life and lifestyle of some incredible people. Each week, we will chat with those in and around our community who have inspired us entertained us but mostly they've made an impact on the queer community of Australia. Today's guest is one of them. This man was born in Warrnambool, Victoria And while his grades at school suggested he could pick up any career he wanted, he has been making a name for himself in the comedy space. Featuring on countless radio and TV shows nationally, you may know him for his stand-up routines, which have been hugely successful all around the world. From the Melbourne International Comedy Festival to the International Comedy Festival, he can sell out a live show and rival some of the biggest names in the biz. You may have heard him on radio as he was on Triple J Breakfast for many years, amongst other projects listened to by many Australian. He has had TV shows on SBS and the ABC, and if you missed him on the much-loved program Tonightly, you may have seen him on Reality Check or First Contact. He has more celebrity mates in the comedy space than you'd probably believe, and he has a passion for politics and social commentary like no other. Like a cat on a wire, he can walk finely between comedy and serious commentary, and for the LGBTI space, he has been a powerful role model. I'd like to welcome you, and I'd like to welcome Tom Ballard to Word for Word.
0: I think that it would be fair to say that, generally speaking, I'm more like my mum and my brother is a bit more like my dad. As a comedian, I I feel on some level I got into comedy or performing just because I need people to like me. I think I'm still my strongest critic, and I think you'll probably find with most comedians. We're joined now by our resident party animal, Tom Ballard. And welcome to Q&A, live from the Adelaide Festival Centre. Here's the thing that really annoys me about Australian politics. We... Don't assassinate our leaders. (laughs) It's annoying, right? Please welcome the absolute hero, Tom Ballard. He's now gone on to host the breakfast show on Triple J. Hang on, I'm not going to repeat them on the ABC. I know it might be it's OK for to Tom Ballard and things to do it. Andrew Bolt believes that ABC should be privatised, refugees should be locked up, he denies the existence of climate change and the stolen generation. No more opinions for Andrew Bolt! From the point we announced that we were cancelled, the last three weeks on air were really fun and cheeky and exciting. But I really, really do believe that if you engage and you care and you give a shit and you connect with other people, ordinary people, and you come together and try and work for the common good, amazing things can happen. So please, get involved, don't be cynical, stay engaged, and please keep laughing.
1: How are you anyway? Oh, good. You good? Yeah, yeah, I am. You know what I always want to ask you is about your swearing. Oh, yes? You love a good swear word. (laughs) It's funny and clever to swear. Do you ever worry about what your parents think about your swearing?
0: Uh, I know exactly what my parents think about my swearing, and they're not a fan, and they let me know that on a regular basis. But look, it's something I've been trying to work on. I started Tonightly, this this TV show, and something that uh, people commented on a lot was how frequently I swore. And initially, my reaction was like, screw you, oldies, grandpas, cop this, that's how I talk in my stand-up, It's how I'm going to talk on TV. And then, you know, people like... Uh, Andrew Denton and Will Anderson, people who have done their fair share of good comedy television, just, just gave some gentle feedback. And I think it's true. They sort of said that swearing on television is very different. And if you swear once on TV, it's like you've sworn seven times. Mm. So, over the course of the half hour, it, it, it gets distracting. And that's the problem. That was the thing that annoyed me. It was like, okay, if it distracts from the comedy, if people are, are, are distracted by how often I'm saying the F word as opposed to listening to my hilarious jokes, then that's a problem. Yeah, and there's certainly some laziness in- inherent in it.
1: It's one of those things, though. Like you know how you can get a good laugh within a live audience with a good swear word. Yes, like it's a good punctuation to a joke. Mm. So like it's like a rhythm that you can get into. Yeah. But I used to always think in my mind, Tom Ballard, love his humour. But you're a bit like Rove, who swears. <laughs> like sweary Rove. Like you know how Rove. Effing what though? Is Rove someone you admire? I love Rove.
0: yeah, I was a huge fan of Rove like on like the TV show and on Channel Ten originally and then in later years they I went back to like the channel Nine version, which was hilarious mm-hmm. too with Dave Callan, and he is just been nothing but absolutely lovely and supportive. you know we, we have the same management and his production company Roving Enterprises have done like the project and stuff that I've worked on. Look, I don't know. I do a thing when I'm trying out new material, I'll say if a joke doesn't go well, I'll say, I've met Rove. To sort of say, hey, I'm a real comedian, you should respect me, is kind of a joke. I guess inherent in that joke is a little bit like, that's a weird thing to brag about, that you've met Rove. Because he's so he's just so present in, in people's my age in terms of associated
1: with Australian comedy, I think. Interestingly enough, you were on a TV show called Reality Check. Yes. And I was like, I'm just going to get this straight off the bat, because I was really disappointed that you didn't ask me to be on the show. Because <laughs> I remember reading about... The fact that you were going to do this show And I was like oh, I love Tom Ballard He he also loves to do a bit of social commentary On reality TV Yes I'm totally going to get asked to do this uh. And then I went to go and have coffee With a mutual friend of ours Michael Beveridge Yes And he was like oh, I'm going to go and do this show with Tom Ballard Oh no I was so upset So I um I was going to tweet you, but then I realised that's just really embarrassing. Um, do you have... Some-
0: <laughs> Plenty of other reality people uh, tweeted me during the course of that show. I'm sure they did. It was an induction into the crazy reality world, which, which you know, full disclosure, I wasn't a crazy reality head, but the, the production company, CJZ, who are the same people who did, like, Gruen, <clears throat> it's sort of similar to Gruen format for people who didn't watch it, which is most people, <laughs> and... Uh, they just wanted to do something with me. I was very excited to work with them. They'd been developing this sort of, this new format looking at reality television. And and I really learned to love it in terms of like, there's a lot of jokes there. And there's a lot that reality television says about who we are as a society. But yeah, I've I've never, I've never been like a reality junkie. I yeah. know you
1: say that, but then think about it. Would you, would you do something like I'm a celebrity? Absolutely not. And I don't, you know, it's just not, it'd be weird. It'd be weird for me. It's not on
0: brand or whatever the hell I have to say. I mean, I did First Contact, which is this, I guess they don't like calling it reality television, they like it, what is it, social social experiment where they take six white people and send us on a journey through remote Aboriginal Australia and it was me and David Oldfield and uh, Natalie Imbruglia. And that was, you know, that was a contrived piece of television that was supposed to be focused on the reality of this sort of contrived situation to talk about, you know, a social issue or the issues facing Indigenous Australia. That's probably as close as, yeah, as close as I'd ever get.
1: What did you think of that experience, doing that show? When you can see the, the strings being pulled at the puppet show?
0: Yeah, it was. it's a fascinating. It's like, you know, We shot for six weeks. We went, the, the, the trip went for six weeks. Wow. And it becomes three hours of television. There's a lot behind the scenes that, yes, that you, you see is manufactured. There's some awful stuff, some awful interactions between particularly David Oldfield, the guy from One Nation, and some Indigenous people that was pretty hard to live through and then didn't make the edit, which was annoying. But I loved it as a personal experience. I couldn't speak to how much of an impact it has as a, as a television program, but I loved doing it. Yeah, it was amazing.
1: Some of those people, I think it's quite traumatic. But you do those shows, and I know that I've done that, where you go and shoot a lot of content... And then there's a long period before it goes to air Yes And then you're terrified as yep. to what they're going to use That so happened with You Can't Ask That For Me Right And I just It was shot in like November And it didn't come out until like July mm. So it was a long period And I'm just about blah, blah blah talker Yeah So it just terrified me Do you ever get terrified about what they're going to put out? What you're not in control of?
0: Yes Yes I, I mean I haven't had a huge experience of not being in the control of the edit But I mean that's definitely one of them I didn't remember anything happening during First Contact that I was like, God, I hope that doesn't end up in the edit. But there was, again, a, a big gap between between finishing shooting and, and it going to air. I guess you're just conscious during the filming of it, just thinking that anything could go to air, so try not to be an asshole.
1: <laughs> you know, we're going to get into a little bit more of that as we go along. Now, you were born in Warrnambool? Yes. So you're from Victoria? Indeed. Regional? Yep. What was you like as a kid growing up in Warrnambool?
0: I was... A little attention seeker, yes I I discovered musical theatre when I was about 8 years old My mum, for some reason, could tell that I would enjoy the process of being on stage and people looking at me And I got the role of Blitzen in a production of Rock and Roll Santa (laughs) Which got all, he had all the funny lines, he was so dumb he forgot who he was And so that resulted in hilarity And then as soon as I did that I was pretty hooked And at that point I realised that I was going to be the greatest actor of my generation And um, pretty much geared my entire life around that, uh, that idea
1: can imagine judy and neil just like wheeling you out (laughs) when people would come around for dinners did you put on shows when people come around
0: yeah i I think my parents encouraged it but it happened yeah my brother and i would do magic shows i would often come out and perform yeah god i'm sorry i'm just cringing thinking about it but it's also adorable i guess and it all paid off i've turned it into a career
1: i always think it's so embarrassing because there's videos we've got at our place of those performances yeah genuinely terrifying burn them all as far <laughs> as i'm concerned now you had you've got one sibling got an older brother i do yes and what was your relationship with like with him Did, what was the family dynamics with you and your brother and your mum and dad
0: i think that i would it would be fair to say that generally speaking i'm more like my mum, and my brother is a bit more like my dad and gavin is yeah in many ways very different for me was was pretty active sport wise cricket and like tennis love that very uh lateral thinking i can't even remember no literal he's a computer programmer and was good at maths and sciences and that kind of thing very very smart dude and i think we were growing up i was just an annoying younger brother wanted to be friends with him and hang out with his friends and he didn't want that and then by the time he turned 18 and i was 15 i had like three more years living at home alone with mum and dad while Gav went off to uni after that three-year period we came back together and we're much closer now does that mean you go along to the footy with him uh no <laughs> <laughs> now we're such good friends that he knows I would hate that. Yeah. We go to theater together, so he started doing musicals when he was in high school in this in this uh, local theater company called Holiday Actors, which is a, a group of people who rehearse over their summer holidays. And yeah, my brother started doing that, and then I got old enough to join Holiday Actors as well, and that was like a big part of uh, our bonding experience. Yeah,
1: where does this performing come from? Like, where does this want to be a performer in the, <laughs> in the Ballard family home? Where does that come from?
0: I have absolutely no idea my parents my parents are not didn't really do any theatre or performing at all, I believe. They do like public speaking stuff. And they're very smart people. My mum's a, a public school teacher. My dad studied teaching in economics and now works in like disability service, so they're they're all about, you know, talking to people sure. all day. But no, I, I could not tell you. I don't know what they did wrong or right to result in me having this need and this love of uh, of
1: performing. I don't get it. Yeah, it's always really strange. Like, my grandmother always says to me, she's like, why do you want to do stuff in the public space? Yeah. But I guess some people are kind of drawn to it. With your relationship with your parents growing up, what was that like?
0: Gosh! Can I lay down on the couch? Yeah. This, this is good. I love my parents very, very much. Tell I, me more. <laughs> yes, but I would say, well, you, you got a few things going on. Yeah, I'm a little performer weirdo. That's odd. I'm not really into sports stuff, which is probably... How my dad, you know, connected with my older brother a fair bit. We, we, I played tennis a bit, but not really. My dad's a pretty is a, is a wonderful father who provides for his family and occasionally has a really good sense of humour, but may come across as slightly grumpy. And maybe I struggle with that a little bit. Whereas mum's sort of much more nurturing kind of vibe. And you know, then I guess yeah, around fourteen, fifteen, I'm figuring out that I'm gay. And I don't really know how to talk about that because my you know, parents and I never really talked about sex stuff or relationship stuff or anything like that. We're all we're all like waspy, you know. It's all like hard to express <laughs> how you feel. We all love each other, but you know, you just don't say it. I think we've got, we're actually recently have got to the point where we say "I love you" as we sign off on the on the phone call.
1: And it's taken you a long time. That's to get weird. To I'm 28. That's wrong. <laughs> How does that affect you growing up with your sexuality? I mean, did, does that mean that did that closet you for a lot longer in any way? Because your parents weren't open about talking about sex, did that make you feel like it was something you couldn't discuss?
0: I think so. Yeah, I, I guess if they had sort of said, if they, yeah, my, my belief now, having gone through all that now, is is being proactive as parents is really good. Even though your parents, your kids will probably go, ugh, mum and dad. If you actively say, you know, we love you on a regular basis and openly speak about the fact, you know, I've since found out that my parents have other gay people in their other extended families and they have gay friends. And if I'd sort of known that and we talked about that a bit more openly, I think I would have felt a bit more comfortable coming out earlier for sure.
1: Was there any chance that they might have been like, oh, we don't want to tell Tom about gay people? (laughs) because that's going to lure him into the gay world.
0: I I don't know. I mean, they just I generally believe they just wanted me to be happy. They definitely knew. You know, I never had a girlfriend in high school. I was doing musical theater. I was in an anti-homophobia group, and I uh, started hanging out with some other gay people, like some very obviously camp camp dudes. Yeah, so when I came out to them, it was no shock at all.
1: In well, fa- how old do you, were you when you worked out your sexuality, do you reckon?
0: When I came out to myself? About 15. And then I didn't tell anyone until I was 17, wrote a letter to my cousin Lucy, and then also, around about that time, started coming out to family and friends.
1: Shout out to Lucy. Yeah. Why does she get the letter first? Like, why would you choose her?
0: Lucy's about the same age as me, my cousin, and I was just very close, We know, going through, so we're going through, like, you know, teenage years together Mm. at the same time, that crazy period, and I just felt very close to her. I think she kind of knew already anyway. What was her response? Oh, she was lovely. She was amazing. Yeah, I wrote a letter back that was just like, love you no matter what. And uh, it was just beautiful and accepting. She was from the city, you see. She grew up in Melbourne. So, she was hanging out with queers all the time, I assume.
1: And then what age then did you decide that you're going to tell your mum and dad?
0: It was 18, yeah, just towards the end of my year 12 year. So, it was the summer starting, finishing up high school. And yeah, it took a lot of effort, but I sat down by my dad and dad uh, and told them. And yeah, my mum said, "That's fine, Tom. We love you no matter what." And then she brought back a book that she'd purchased called "My Child Is Gay." So um, I think she was a- across it.
1: That's cute. That's I'm cute. such a busybody, but can what did you say to them? Like, because for me, I was like, rang my mum and said, "Can you meet me at a Tourette coffee shop?" <laughs> and she straight away rang my. You're gay. <laughs>
0: That's a great way to come out. You don't even need to say it. Yeah.
1: It was weird because I said to mum, come meet me at this turak coffee shop. Mum rang my brother straight away. Because they're going to what? Tell you something? Yeah, I said, I just want to tell you something. Good hook.
0: That's good radio.
1: She speed dialed my brother. Yes. And was like... I'm going to meet Ben for a coffee. He's definitely telling me that he's gay. Yes. Spoiler alert, my brother's at my house and I've just told him. Great. Right. So, and he was like, just tell mum, because he was already like, she's totally all over it. Yes. And has been over it since, you know, the worm, basically. <laughs> Not being able to hide it. But yeah, that's why I'm always really interested, because I said to her I was bisexual. So did you try and use the, I'm just being curious approach
0: i didn't there was no yes no transition period or or in between period for me and i know there are a bunch of bisexual Mm. people i'm not saying that that is a transition phase or whatever but no i never thought to do that but and and it was a bit different for me too because i perhaps i'm not i think you're slightly more camp than i am perhaps and you say outrageous tom get out (laughs) get out of the studio but you say you know your mum knew as soon as you're a kid i don't know if you're a particularly effeminate child or what have you but and I always feel – I have friends who – lots of friends who are like that who say – or seem to give the impression that they're a camp – or we all know camp young men who haven't come out yet. And we think, oh, it's adorable. It'll be great when he finds out and comes out and stuff. And I and the the feedback – or what I hear from some camp guys is that, is that that's kind of um, – it robs their ability to come out to people. Like when they come out to people and they go, yeah, duh, of course you're gay. That kind of undercuts that moment for them a little bit because they're like, "No, I'm telling you something. I know maybe you knew already, but for me, saying this out loud to these people that I love, that's really important to me." I'm always a bit conscious of that. Whereas me, I'm not a particularly uh, obvious uh, gay man, and wasn't what, wasn't when I was a, uh, a high school student. So for some people, I think it was a bit of a surprise. Yeah.
1: Well, I had nowhere to hide. Mm. Wanting to play with Barbies. There you go. And all my friends were women, mm. and then just being a really, really camp child. Yep. Yeah, it meant that I think pretty much were aware of my... I think people felt like they knew my sexuality before I was ready to know. Yeah. Which I guess for you, being a little bit more masculine meant that, you know, you probably had a little bit more protection from that.
0: I guess so, yeah. I mean, it could have easily been I just was a um, uh, slightly chubby, shy nerd who wasn't ready to talk to girls at all.
1: Were you ready to talk to boys?
0: No. <laughs> <laughs> But at least I knew I wanted to have sex with them.
1: you like, I'm keen on the sex idea with these boys now. How do I get them to want to do that? <laughs> How old were you when you had your first relationship then?
0: So it was around about that same time I started going out with the gentleman uh, who was the other gay in Warnable that I knew.
1: Oh, the other gay in the village.
0: Yeah, and he uh, he was re- he's a really lovely person. I saw him the other week actually. Really lovely person who is very camp. Was like you know fashion is very much into fashion and designing. And uh, was out to his parents, I think, you know, when he was maybe 15 or 16, something like that. And, yeah, we started dating because we were both younger gay. And uh, that was good, but potentially after a while we realised maybe that's all that we sort of had in common. But at that point, in warnable, other gay men that you knew were definitely uh, in the dating pool immediately.
1: Going through school, what was that like? So, what's the school experience? Like, how do you fit into the hierarchy at school?
0: Oh, boy. I uh, am cool, not a cool kid, I'm fine, I'm, yeah, somewhere in that middle thing, not not overly cool, not the focus of regular bullying, and very nerdy, uh, so, you know, regularly doing quite well academically, not very well sport-wise, and I sort of had a bunch of um, friends in high school that sort of came with me from primary school who were all very nice people, a bunch of really nice dudes who sort of, yeah, still formed that, that regular friendship group. Who, yeah, I think at that point, even having gone to primary school with me, just accepted that I, you know, the thing that I was good at was writing and um, sucking up to teachers and public speaking and performing. That's just sort
1: of what I did. Well, you did sort of get an accolade for public speaking, and I think that topic was about bullying. So, like, how were you dealing with bullying at that age?
0: Honestly, I think I probably talked about cyberbullying because it was a hot topic as opposed to any... Incredible personal
1: experience. So I su- you had no bullying whatsoever? No, no, no.
0: <laughs> not saying that. I remember in primary school, yes, I, w- I was bullied. I changed classes. You know, you could choose the people you wanted to be in a year level with, uh, in a classroom with. And I changed- one year I changed to try and be with these cooler dudes. And then over the course of that year, they proceeded to run off on me uh, and make fun of how not good at sport I was. So that was annoying and not good. And then I went back to the good friends. And... I think I was probably, yeah, probably just teased for being a bit of a, a nerd or a goody two-shoes, probably. It took me a long time. I didn't, I didn't really start underage drinking till 17 or doing naughty things. And often I'd be saying things like, we can't do that. That's against the rules.
1: <laughs> At this stage, does your sense of humour come from a way of deflecting?
0: It could well do. I definitely think that now I do jokes about... When I do jokes about things that I don't like about myself...
1: Well, that's I, always that, funny. That's
0: a sense of ownership, yes. It's and like, you've
1: got an endless source of material. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Brutal. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a way of owning that thing about you. So, if if you're already making jokes about yourself, then other people can't um, can't sort of undercut you with their own takes on the fact that, yeah, you're chubby or you can't kick a football or what have you. So, if you can kind of own that through through comedy, then that's really great. So, there's probably some psychology going on there. I don't know. I you know, hear about some comedians who got out of a fight because they were so quick-witted. That's never happened to me. That wasn't you. <laughs> I don't think so.
1: If you've just tuned in, my name's Benjamin Norris, and this is Word for Word, and this week's special guest, and joining me in the studio right now is Tom Ballard. Interestingly enough for you, you ended up doing the Class Clown competition. Is that your first induction into the comedy space?
0: Yes, this is me still wanting to be an actor, desperately, and thought, oh, well, this competition allows you to go on stage, and it's more stage time, and people look at you, and you get all the attention, and you can say whatever you want. I think at that point, I probably started watching the Oxfam Comedy Gala that the Comedy Festival used to do every year that was on TV. I used to, like, watch that tape on on VCR and watch it over and over again, and being quite amazed. Who were your favourite
1: comedians at that stage?
0: At that point, I'm watching your tripods, your Judith Lucy's, your Fiona O'Loughlin's, Hughie, Will Anderson, you know, the. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy to think that they are people who I would now consider maybe friends. And, uh, yeah, I was watching them as a little kid, Grandpa Warnable on the telly. And the international comedians that would come through for the festival and that as well, like Daniel Kitson or, you know, Jeff Green was always on there and Tom Gleason was always hilarious, Boothby Graffo. And then, yeah, when I was 14, they had this competition and I had a crack at it, and it went all right.
1: And you did well. Did
0: okay. I mean, I think I had this confidence of doing theatre and doing public speaking. The material was truly awful, I'm sure. And who wants to listen to a (laughs) 14-year-old and their opinions?
1: Well, I think it's a good... That competition, I think, is good. Like, I think it's it's giving a a platform to younger people for them to go out there and see whether or not that's something that they're interested in. It's
0: insane. You do three, like first gig was the first heat. I got yeah. through that. Then I went to the state final. Then I ended up on the May, on the freaking Melbourne town hall stage in front of 1,500 school students at a show hosted by Ross Noble. So mm-hmm. third gig in. Doing pretty well. I don't know what other performing arts industry you would get to like that stage that quickly. But it is amazing. And, you know, you got feedback from judges and you get coaching from professional
1: comedians. And
0: yeah, I loved it.
1: What did that whole experience teach you coming out of that?
0: I don't know if it taught me anything other than giving me a, a, an addiction because when I was on stage by myself and everyone, all the attention was on me and I got to say something funny and people laughed, that rush was quite uh, quite electric.
1: Does that mean you gave <laughs> up your passion for being an actor, being on Home and Away?
0: <laughs> no, I think I was like, oh, I guess I'll do stand-up comedy as a side thing before I focus on winning my Oscar. Uh, no, I still kept auditioning for... A, acting schools like for and VCA and Whopper at the end of... And I kept training and thinking about that for the next three years and then didn't get into any of them
1: and thought, oh, okay, I'll keep doing stand-up. Do you think you'll end up doing acting at some point?
0: I think I'm, I'm actually probably more likely to end up acting on a TV series now, going the route I have, than if I'd gone to acting school. I just think, yeah, the ability to, to create your own stuff, write your own stuff and have that made through comedy... Means that yes, my chances are probably better this way. Well,
1: yeah. Joel Creasy was on Neighbours this year. He was, he was indeed. Maybe they could bring Joel's character back on Ramsey Street. Yes, you could hook up with him. Be a hot couple. That. We were together in Peter Helley's show. It's a day. We did an episode of that together. If you could go back in time, if you open, if we open this door right now, mm-hmm. and in comes twelve-year-old. Oh God, Tom. Yes. What advice do you have for Tom? I would tell myself. I just think of all
0: the the worry that my younger self went through, all the needless stress of just, you know, maybe it's inevitable, inevitable part of adolescence. But based on, you know, you're a bit old, now that I'm older and think about all the other problems in my life that are bigger and problems in the world, just enjoy being 12, for God's sakes. Just love every bit of it, about not having responsibility, about everybody paying for you to do everything. Just love it.
1: So, yeah, come out of school. And you did really well at school, by the way. So, congratulations on that. Because on your Wikipedia, it does say that you were like ducks of the school. Ducks of the southwest region. But it's not important. So, you pretty much could have gone to do anything at that point. But you choose comedy.
0: Yeah, I, I, want, I took a gap year after year 12. I think I just wanted a break and to travel a bit and just sort of chill out. In that gap year, I eventually moved to Melbourne, started doing stand-up comedy. And then by 2009, the year after that... I'd ended up at Triple J. Triple J had seen me do raw comedy in uh, 2006. I was in the grand final of that, won by Hannah Gadsby. I don't know what happened to her. And, uh, and then we started, myself and Alex started, Dyson started doing demos to work at Triple J. And, uh, and eventually, by 2009, we were doing the weekend breakfast show. I did six weeks of uni of law at Monash University. And then dropped out because stand-up was doing all right. And I had this radio gig. And I thought, I might as well have a crack at this. Yeah.
1: What did you do, seven years at Triple J? All up, yes,
0: yeah, four four years a weekday breakfast, yeah, but from woe to go, about seven years, yeah.
1: And what does that Triple J experience feel like now, looking back? Uh,
0: Maybe at the time, never really quite appreciated the impact of that, of, of like, how many people listen and how much being part of someone's regular commute to work or, you know, if they're on the work site or going to uni or whatever, how much you sort of become part of their lives for that period of time that you're on there. And being an out gay dude being broadcast on triple j that is listened to a lot of tradies by tradies on work sites it felt like it felt at least the impression i've got from a bunch of people is that i was the first gay man that they
1: thought was okay
0: respected yeah <laughs> or or was just familiar with and maybe seemed a bit more relatable to them i guess than perhaps your uh, your joel creases
1: I know what that feeling is like. As I was saying to you before you came in here, I did three years of breakfast radio for Central Queensland in a mining town, Mm. basically. So, that's, you know, mining is the big thing in there. Yeah. And my partner and I go to the pub and and I never tone it down. Yeah. So, I'd be there with my singlet on and my shorts and I'd be having a beer. But we would get tradies coming over and saying, here's a beer and you're all right. You could see this look in their face where they're like, you know. I'm going to allow this. I'm going (laughs) to... This is the most I've ever stood out of my circle. Yes. <laughs> but there's something very powerful about being able to to commandeer that, I think. Yeah, it's and I'm pretty gay.
0: It's the only way things change, right? And the way that not the only way, I shouldn't I should rephrase that. But, you know, you you've 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 seen that with like the marriage equality movement and people who broadly speaking would have been pretty homophobic mm. have someone in their family come out or meet an actual gay, a living and breathing gay, real one. gay man or well, woman, a real one. And they go, "Oh wow,
1: it's the people." <laughs> you connect well with people in, in lots of different ways, but you know, what makes a good comedian? I think authentic- authenticity
0: uh, people like knowing who, who you are. They like seeing people with a good sense of themselves and people who are being honest, mm. and who and yeah, if you're honest and you're, you're truly being yourself which might be a cliche, uh, but on television or in radio, regardless of what you do or don't know, I think people are into that. People like that kind of Mm. genuine realness. I think you see that a lot in podcasts at the moment, the popularity of podcasts. People can be extremely honest and just very intimate with that kind of medium. The best radio presenters, the best comedians are the ones, I think, that are the most like themselves on stage. Yeah, I think people like that. They just don't like the artifice nonsense. Which is why I, I can't, like, watch Sunrise or The Today Show or anything. I just, I find that just so, just unreal, yeah. Just just a bunch of BS, to be honest. And they're not, none of that is real or or genuine or, um, I don't know. It's just not for me.
1: I find that when I'm watching a lot of that, it makes me feel like there's a an end date for mainstream television. <laughs> because I think the next generation that's growing up demands authenticity, mm. demands some realness. And with that, when they're presentering at you, it doesn't seem to cut through. Do you think that means that we will see less and less of those sorts of shows?
0: Yeah. Well, I think TV's going to change heaps regardless just by the nature of when people are working and catch up television and the internet. It feel, it still feels very boomer to me. Sunrise today feels very boomer. A uh, very old-school way of thinking about, about how television works, really. So, yes, I hope I hope that changes. I think that's good. But, I don't know, people think that Carl Sandlin's is like... Uh, He's real. He calls it like he sees it. But Whereas, to me, I still read that all as performance, as weird performance myself.
1: Do you worry about what people think of you?
0: Yes. Yes, I do. Which, <clears throat> I think we're told, there's certainly a message that, uh, hey, don't let other people define you, and you shouldn't worry what other people think. And obviously, there's an extent to that, which will drive you insane. And, uh, you know, you need to be true to yourself and listen to your own moral compass. But... The flip side of not caring what other people think about you is you being an asshole who doesn't care about other people's feelings or thoughts or isn't very considerate of other people. And I think I'm proud of the fact, I think that for the most part, the people who know me generally like me and think that I'm uh, polite and try to look out for other people as much as I can. Yeah, I think that's a good thing.
1: Outside of that space, though, do you worry about what the people who you don't know, the faceless people out there, do you worry or do you read what people say about you on social media? Uh,
0: I do generally because I'm relatively active on, say, Twitter or, you know, I regularly use social media to promote my work and say I'm doing this stuff. So Mm. inevitably sort of come across, you come across people's feedback when we had the TV show tonight on a regular basis. Yeah, it was inescapable from the Australian to politicians to people on Twitter telling you exactly what they think of you. That's slightly different Yeah, when you're talking about like Viewers or members of the public What they think about my work If I like the work Then I don't I don't particularly care And potentially If they really hate it It can be quite funny
1: <laughs> But how much of what is out there Do you read Or, or how much do you sense yourself from reading
0: I should de- almost definitely read none of it But when it's like a te- You know, when tonight it was starting And we're trying to see You know, what kind of imp- What do people make of it so far Is it cutting through Was reading a lot of that I try not to read reviews during comedy festival season or try to read them at the end of the run because, well, it's just like if you read it and it's a shitty review and you're halfway through, you know, you've, you've still got two and a half weeks left to go of this show. It'd just be a bummer. And by the time it gets to Melbourne Comedy Festival, it should be the show that I want it to be and I should just enjoy doing the show as opposed to how many stars it's getting from anyone, you know. A lot of that's easier said than done And I've been known to search my own name on Twitter Which is pathetic And yeah, I'm trying to free myself of that And trying to remind myself that Isn't it um, weird
1: though that we A lot of people out there will say that they don't do that I like that you say you do actually do search yourself And you will read it Because I think a majority of people do mm. But then we're we're told to say that we don't do that Like we, we, oh no, I'm not one of those people I would never read, you know yeah. I don't read Twitter And you're like, no, no, no <laughs> You 100% do Yeah
0: whether or not one should is another question. Yes, I'd, I'd, I'd like to not, not worry about that.
1: And you kind of have now reached this level of success. And so, like, with a level of success that you will reach, then you get more people sort of saying stuff. If you are getting a bit of hate on social media, that's usually a sign that you're resonating in a way.
0: Yeah, people are thinking something of you. Yeah, that's good.
1: Moving away from that, though, tonight, Lee... Amazing! Mm. Oh, and thank you. How weird is it that it's taken so long for us in Australia to have a gay man <laughs> have a talk show when we know that Ellen, for the last 16 years, has had the number one talk show in America, beating Oprah back in the day? Yes. And then you have Graham Norton, you know, who's from Ireland, but, and like, Andy Cohen, you know, it's proven that we have some really talented people in the queer space, and then we get Tom Ballard. Well, we had Graham John Kennedy, Starling.
0: but I guess he doesn't really count. <laughs>
1: Still to this day, I tell people that Graham Kennedy's gay and they don't believe me. And it was like so shocking to so many people.
0: Well, still, I mean, I
1: don't, if you've seen Bohemian
0: Rhapsody, he was in it. Yeah. The film, yeah.
1: I just, just still the
0: idea that there were fans of Queen who were like, Freddie, mate, just, just probably slaying the ladies all over the place. <laughs> or when he comes out and what? Freddie Mercury is gay? I mean, I just, that's mind blowing to me. But anyway, uh, yes, it was a joy to host that show, and uh, yeah, I think, you know, my sexuality was sort of like a running running gag, it was something you could go to for a few jokes, or the fact that I was single, or what have you, that was always there. But, and we did, and we had quite a lot lot of uh, queer people uh, working on the show, a lot of gender diverse people, and people like Cassie Workman, who did our um, segment, So You Think You're Trans?, there was, and of course, you know, for the for the alt-right, there was a hotbed of leftist Marxist ideology uh, that was poisoning the minds of the, the nation's youth. But for us, yeah, we were really proud of the fact of how diverse... The comedy was and the voices that we were putting on on tv that was really cool
1: they renewed season two on this yes so they're going to go ahead with the season two yes and then what are the reasons why this show didn't come about because like for me i watched it a lot of people i know watched it a lot of people loved it you had a big cult success with it so and you have to be proud of that which i think you should be but why do you think that the show ended up being cancelled
0: um, I I could not give you a definitive answer on that. You would have to ask uh, ask the folks. It seemed like there are a few factors going on. You know, it wasn't the cheapest show in the world to make because it's a daily show. It has a staff of 40 people. It was, for the show, it was an absolute skeleton crew, like in the realm of daily comedy shows. It's insane the kind of tight budget that we had to make that show. But in the world of the ABC, it's a slightly more expensive show to make. It wasn't rating its pants off when it comes comes to like broadcast television. Um, I don't know what their expectations were for how much it was supposed to rate, but you know it's this kind of double edged sword where it was a show for people who are under forty, who broadly do not speak, uh, do not watch live TV. A lot of people watched either the clips and stuff on Facebook or YouTube or watched it on iView. And it was building an audience, and you know when we did go, when we did hit on a sketch that went viral online, we would get millions and millions of views, which I was told from the start was exactly what the show was about. Really, so it was about like a you know a mixture of like expectations and confused expectations, I guess, about what the show was. The people who set up the show at the start didn't work there anymore by the time it came around to the renewal decision. There was obviously a whole bunch of tension, as people might have seen, as as we later found out between Michelle Guthrie and the chairman. The the ABC was over budget, I think, by about 70 million bucks, I think that came up. So, all those pressures involved, and who knows? I mean, the fact that we got in trouble a few times and pissed off some members of the government may well have been a factor influencing the decision. I don't know. When it finished up, I, I was like, oh, that's sad, but hey, we got to make 150 episodes. That's really cool. That's fun. And then two weeks later, you know, all the this, all this stuff about Guthrie and Milne come out and, it, and that was kind of frustrating because you kind of go, you know, we were working our butts off every day and it sounds like you guys were acting a little bit childish behind the scenes about mm. trying to make this all
1: happen. But is there anything that you would do differently?
0: Well, I mean, you know, people pointed out that when the, from the point we announced that we were cancelled, the last three weeks on air were really fun and cheeky and exciting. And I think that's true. I think we did a lot of fun and cheeky and exciting stuff before that. Just no one was watching. But the lesson you take from that is that, oh, you should, you should go into everything no holds barred. We should have acted like we were about to be cancelled from day one. And then we would have really, really actually pushed things and taken the risk.
1: Mm.
0: But, it, you know, that takes time. It takes time to learn that lesson. It takes time for us to get the confidence and figure out who we are as a show before we started pushing the envelope. But I'm really proud of the show. I loved it. I love the people working on it. I think we made some really good stuff, and we made some really ambitious things. And, you know, we were we, we took a lot of risks, and I would like the ABC to keep doing that. I worry. I, I do seriously worry that it's becoming more more conservative and less and a little bit gun shy, and that's not what the ABC should be to me. But yeah, I, I loved it. I had a great time.
1: We kind of mentioned before that Reality Check was a construct sort of made, you know, separately, and then mm. you were brought on board. Mm. How much of Tonightly with Tom Ballard is you? Well, that was actually a
0: similar situation where the ABC was developing this format. The show sort of existed in in a way when they approached me, and I actually said no a couple of times because it just wasn't clear what what it was. And it also, what they were saying it was, it wasn't close to what I wanted it to be or what I would like myself to W- w- the kind of show that I wanted to do
1: Well how did they originally um, present that idea to well,
0: you? Well I mean originally it was sort of a um, it was, There were three hosts on a panel Chatting about the day's news with no audience uh, And I was just like Oh that, doesn't, that either sounds sort of close to the project Or just not very not very fun
1: You're like no The show needs to be with one host, me <laughs> And it needs a lo- live audience That's been given a lot to drink So they laugh at my jokes Ta-da!
0: Yeah, pretty much Well no we didn't give them alcohol actually That would have been great But no, it was just like, look, I'm used to standing in front of an audience and telling them jokes. And lately I've been doing a lot more political stuff, so if it was sort of like a churning through the day's news about politics and that kind of thing, in front of an audience laughing, that would make me happy, that would be cool. So let's do that, please. And eventually the ABC said, oh, fine. And so um, that's kind of what we made, yeah.
1: If you've just tuned in, my name's Benjamin Norris, and this is Word for Word, and this week's special guest, and joining me in the studio right now is Tom Ballard. You're brought up around very left-wing (laughs) parents. Yeah, centre-left, you know, I'd say, yeah. How much of an impact did their politics have on you?
0: Well, it was always never expl- – but I've only recently sort of started talking to them about it. I did a, a podcast interview with, with my mum and dad talking about their polit- political background, which they hated doing, but I found very interesting. Uh, yeah, so they were involved in uh, unions and were probably – yes, a bit further to the left, were probably radicalised by university a little bit and have since moved moved much more to the centre – but I I love them. I mean, they've been involved in Amnesty International for a very very long time. They care about human rights. They've sort of moved away from the Labour Party because of the Labour Party's position on uh, offshore detention and what what we're doing to refugees. And and yeah, they you know they're chipping away doing their activism. And I I, lo- I love that. Yeah, right. But we never really talked a lot about politics at the at the dinner table or what have you.
1: Growing up, I just assumed because of your background knowledge on politics that it must have just been. You know Dinner conversation
0: um, Maybe Maybe I think Yeah Dad used to have uh, Election night parties With his friend Michael His friend Michael Would come around They'd drink beer And talk about um, Stupid politicians As the results came in So Maybe maybe yeah In those subtle ways All that kind of thing So he knew it,
1: politicians And politics was important Yeah
0: And that smart people Talked about them And thought about them And John Howard was bad That's
1: probably what I knew <laughs> <laughs> is it strange that so many people know so little about politics? I mean, do you get frustrated talking to people of our generation who have no idea? The
0: problem that, that that people like me often have is that you talk to ordinary people who don't do that, and you come across as a weirdo, or as a moralist, or as a boring person who's kind of always banging on about the same thing, and always, and people feel sort of judged and that kind of thing. So... Yeah, the way we communicate and connect with other people and trying to get them to care about the stuff that we care about is an ever-present challenge. And I don't I don't know what it is. I mean, I, I try to do that through comedy. You know, I try to make people laugh and also tell them what I think and maybe remind them to be angry about the stuff they should be angry about.
1: See, I think you're very successful in that. Like, oh, I went and saw friends. one of your shows in Melbourne. I think it was either – it might actually be more than three years ago. But I saw you talking about The Refugees. And it was still really funny, Mm. but it was actually funny in the sense that you were giving me real information about stuff that's actually happening. Mm. And I was laughing about, oh, my God, this is so funny, but I'm so stupid. (laughs) Good.
0: That's what you get out of a Tom Ballard show. You'll laugh and you'll feel like an idiot.
1: Well, no, but you'll also walk out and probably think that maybe you should... Think You should probably think about things a little bit differently. Well, that's
0: great. I mean, I, and I was under no illusions with that. You know, that show was overwhelmingly attended by people who already agreed with me and al- already knew the deal and already knew that this was bad news, This the, the way that we treat refugees in Australia. But if if that can just shake people a little bit and say, just remember that this is awful and that it's not something that we, we should accept, That's that's a good thing. And a great piece of... Propaganda or or political messaging out there can just be really a really clear moral message, which just says it's really it's wrong that unions are constricted the way they are by the law in this country, that people don't have the right to strike. Uh, it's wrong that we lock up refugees. It's wrong that trans people are dehumanized by the law. It's it's wrong that people can't have access to a safe and dignified way to end their own life if if they wish. These things are wrong and you should be angry about them. It's wrong that freaking billionaires exist while we've got homeless people on the street. That's nuts. And we all accept, you You know, we sort of... We swallow this idea that that's just the way it is and it's inevitable and things are slowly getting better and all this stuff and, and the stuff that gets me excited and angry and passionate is the stuff that just says, no, it's, it is absolutely wrong that Gina Reinhart lives the way she does while you've got hundreds of thousands of Australians who are living on the street or kids living below the poverty line. There's got to be a better system.
1: But where do you go to resource that information? Because, like, I mean, you can't just pick up the paper and trust that, you know, your journos are feeding you the right information. <laughs>
0: Particularly the Herald Sun or, uh, or the Australian, yeah.
1: Have you run into any of these journalists, by the way? Because there's three that I'm thinking of right now that you've publicly <laughs> said a few things about. I just always picture this is how much I think of you. Just picture Tom Ballard getting on the plane and sitting next to one of them. <laughs> Have you come in contact with?
0: Um, I went to the I went to News Corp headquarters in Sydney once, and uh, News Limited rather, and Miranda Devine was walking out there. I don't think she saw me, but. Uh, Never talked to her. Uh, Andrew Andrew, Andrew Bolt? Emailed Andrew Bolt to be on my podcast. He said no because I'd done
1: jokes about him before. (coughs) No, we don't mix in the same circles. It's weird. Just still (laughs) somehow picture you sitting in like the Qantas business lounge. (laughs) Oh, hello. I'm not in business. I'm in the normal. Yeah, well, they probably are as well. (laughs) But I always wonder, like, if you did have the opportunity, I mean, obviously, you're just saying there that, you know, you've invited them to do a podcast with you. If you do have the opportunity to sit down and have those conversations, what do you want to say to them?
0: Um, Less and less these days. I mean, I yeah, I used to be all like, hey, we can sit down and have a conversation and we can find some common ground here. And now I'm like, nah, not, not, I don't care. I'm not interested in that. And even if it is all a facade, which it, it, it often is, particularly for those on Sky News, these people are putting on a character because um, they have to have an opinion or they have to fill a column. Andrew Bolt has admitted as, this as much. He sort of says, I have to have an opinion. Sometimes I have too many opinions. haha, <laughs> what are you going to do? Not accepting responsibility for the fact that, you know, it's this very popular role writer in Australia, you know, he influences and whips up people's racial hatred. Even if it is a facade, I'm just not interested really in, in talking to people who engage in that kind of stuff. Mm. I just I just find it objectionable, you know?
1: Don't you think that there's a lot of these journalists and a lot of these politicians just looking to keep their name out totally. there? It's, it's insane. And they get it wrong and there's no repercussions for
0: them. Greg Sheridan, the foreign affairs editor of The Australian, who's supposed to be an expert in foreign relations, supported the Iraq war. The Iraq war is unquestioningly a horrific disaster that's resulted in the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people. And he's still out there every day writing new opinion columns and we're listening to him and politicians take him seriously. like, hmm, that's interesting, Greg. He must know what he's talking about. He's in the paper you know, we they'd never get tossed out. There's no, like, um, accountability for any of these
1: people. So... Even what they did with safe Schools, you look at, you know, how quickly safe Schools was pulled apart. Nuts. And a majority of what was being written in the papers and educating people was completely untrue. It's the thing. They don't care. They don't care. And, and if you free yourself from all of that,
0: if you realise that this battle between the left and the right is, is, has been going on for a very, very long time and will almost certainly always be thus... And the only hope that I find is that the left gets better at winning and winning power and, you know... Exposing these these silly people, you know. I mean, when you come to say the science of climate change, there's just there just isn't a debate. And these idiots who keep defending a dying industry like uh, like burning coal, without acknowledging the fact that it could kill the earth, you just got to get them out. Just got to just just got to flush them out. There's no saving them or changing their mind. We've just got to win more and marginalize their point of view in, in public debate. I think that's the only way to do it.
1: Which brings me back to my question. So, where do you resource your information? Like, where do you get that? Ah, podcasts.
0: <laughs> podcasts. I tried. Uh, yeah, I tried read uh, a lot. I'd like to read more books than I do. I will. Yeah, I watch a lot of discussion shows like uh, Insiders or Q and A. I find them occasionally helpful. Uh, sites like uh, Jacobin, the writings of Helen Razor, and interviews mainly. That's that's sort of where I yeah find my stuff.
1: Do you think maybe with having a platform and also being politically minded that we would ever see? You try and get into politics? Um, It has vaguely crossed my mind once or
0: twice in this crazy world. I like being politically active. I like helping out wherever I can. Whether that means actually running for office, I don't know at this stage. But my insane ego
1: (laughs) makes you think that (laughs) it's going to be
0: good. I remember in primary school, kids were like, oh, Tom, you're going to be prime minister one day. And I'll be like, shut up, I'm not. And then in the back of my head was like, yeah, that's probably right. It
1: could happen at some time. Well, I mean, you look at some people these days, they are using their platforms to get into the political space. What do you think that you would do looking at the LGBTI community? What do you think that we need to focus on? Gosh. Like if you were prime minister, Mm. what are the things that you would change? (laughs) I want to know.
0: Well, I wouldn't say that the idea of bisexuality makes my skin curl or dismiss the idea of gay conversion therapy. Or uh, endorse the religious discrimination against uh, queer teachers and students. Just as a start, I wouldn't do that. Look, I mean, I think, you know, the, the, the conversation around trans rights at the moment is still massive. It's still the new front. That's the new boogeyman that um, the Christian right and conservative people are trying to raise. And uh, yes, mental health services the level of homelessness amongst the queer community and for queer young people particularly are really poor. And a lot of those issues are specific to the queer community but also speak to broader problems. Homelessness is a massive problem in Australia that does not get the attention it deserves and that needs government attention to make it better. I don't accept that homelessness is an inevitable consequence of our society. I think that's rubbish and Mm. I think that
1: could be changed, yeah, for sure. Where do you find time to have... For yourself, for I'm a comedian. Life. I have nothing but time.
0: <laughs> I'm a comedian who's supposed to be writing an hour-long stand-up show. Yep. I'm desperate for any distractions.
1: That's why I'm here. What about your personal life at the moment? Are you seeing anyone?
0: I'm not, no. Single, ready to mingle. Uh, yeah, the, uh, I still haven't found a place to live at the moment, so I don't have any fixed address. That's a factor, I feel Is like. Is that
1: it- a factor? <laughs> well... Is that just an excuse, Tom? I'm just... Yes, it's, 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 it's an excuse. It's an excuse. I don't have a boyfriend because I don't have a postcode.
0: <laughs> well, you need somewhere to take them, or you can't. I mean, I was house sitting at my friend's auntie's house for two weeks. I can't mm. take them back there, and I can't go on dates because I'm either riding, doing gigs, or, or looking at goddamn houses.
1: What's the longest relationship you've ever had?
0: It's a year and a half. Oh, was that with Joshua Thomas? Thomas? Yes.
1: Do you still are you still friends with him? Yeah, yeah, I am. I have not see much. He lives in LA now. Is it harder to find relationships now that your profile is as big as it is? It,
0: it, it's it's a slight factor, I guess. I mean, yes, there's a bunch of yes people who maybe are interested in dating me briefly for the for the novelty factor, perhaps for the note of writing. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, I'm you know I'm, I'm up for 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 dating people and meeting new people. Yeah, that'd be nice.
1: What are you looking for in a relationship?
0: Massive. Um, <laughs> n- no. Someone who's, someone who's funny and someone who uh, cares about the same things that I do, I think, yeah. Someone who like doesn't care about how people look and aren't, isn't obsessed with the gym, but is also very hot. So, just that kind of sweet spot. That's
1: have funny. you ever taken someone home to meet your mum and dad?
0: Yes, yes, a couple of boyfriends have met the folks.
1: What are they like when they meet your boyfriends? <laughs> They're fine, yeah. Does the relationship end and then they go, you know, we thought blah, 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 blah. Did they give you any feedback? Um, I don't know if they've given feedback. Mainly just, oh, we thought
0: he was nice. And uh, I don't know. Again, just so awkward and so bad at expressing their emotions. Mum will be like, um, oh, I don't want to pry, Tom, but are are you seeing anyone? Do you have any friends? And I'm like, that's not prying. You're my mother. You're allowed to ask about whether or not I have a partner. That's okay. Just relax. Chill out, Mum. You might, no, maybe one
1: day in the years to come, move back to Warnerville with uh, a boyfriend. Great. Good. <laughs> Could you see yourself ever going back to Warnable? What, what would not. I do? <laughs> what would I do? I have no skills. I have literally no skills. Have you got a message for the queer community that might be listening to this now? I'm single. No, look, I was. I went to- Should you uh... give your phone number out? Over a... <laughs> You're listening to this radio show and you'd like a date with Tom Ballard. <laughs>
0: Uh, I went to a celebration, like a year-on party, um, last Thursday of the, of the marriage equality vote, and um, it at was the 86? at the eighty-six. At the eighty-six, yeah, yeah, and I loved it. And it was the joy in that room was amazing, and all the memories of the of the decades-long campaign, really, that was going on, and the amount of community activism and time and effort that people poured into this thing that they believed in, and I love that. And I just, my only message would be to, would be, don't forget that. Don't let that dissipate. Yet yeah, the fight is nowhere near over. And the lesson that you need to learn from that, from that, uh, from that campaign, even though Malcolm Turnbull thinks that he did it, is that people coming together, ordinary people coming together in a mass movement, loving each other, helping each other out, and working towards a common goal—that's what actually gets stuff done. Um, as opposed to any one amazing leader or uh, any one piece of legislation, it's it's about that that movement and um, organising ourselves as a community. Yeah.
1: Yeah, we need to learn more about what we did as a community. I think with marriage equality.
0: Yeah, as I think a- so. I mean, yeah, people said like we can't, you know, beyond beyond yes, right? We can't let all that dissipate, all that organizing we
1: did. We've we've we can ask for more, uh, and we should. I also think it's quite powerful what the LGBTI community learned during that time, and now yes, we can fight for things within our space, but we can also share our learnings with other people hmm. on how we can create change, hmm. how we do create. Social change, yeah, yeah,
0: I think so. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Uh, we, 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 you, you can't let that go away. And and, and the fear that people had that yet yeah, marriage equality was the final hurdle in the rights in the struggle for equality. I think that's um yeah, that's not the case at all.
1: I try to tell people this is the worst analogy I've ever had. I've yep. never said this on this show before, but my friend and I were really drunk when we came up with it. we were like Alanis Morissette and Natalie Imbruglia. They both came out with these albums that were like pop. Successes Like, they're a very commercially viable sound album, and that was very digestible by the wider community. And then the second album was, like, really complex, but they talked about real personal issues. Probably wasn't as accessible to other people. I feel like we are in the process as the LGBTI community and writing that second album, which is a little bit more personal, (laughs) a little bit more complex, and the wider community are going to find a little bit harder to take on board.
0: That's interesting. And an international approach, too. I mean, like, there are countries in our region, Indonesia particularly, where queer people are horrifically persecuted Um, in in Africa, certainly. Uh, That's still still very true. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, kind of Trump, the Trump approach to, you know, the insane transgender policies that his administration is trying to bring in, you know, could spread here. There are certainly some fans of uh, Trump and his ideology here.
1: Um, Isn't that scary that the capital C conservatives, I think, in some ways, are looking at what's happening in America, at what I'm horrified about America, and they're borrowing some of those learnings. They
0: like it, yeah. Yes, so, um, yes, struggle on, comrades. That's my message.
1: Well, Tom Ballard, thank you so much for coming in here and being a part of Word for Word. Thank you, man.
0: Word for Word is presented and produced by Ben Norris from Australia's LGBTI radio station, Joy. Word for Word is distributed nationally to over 70 radio stations across the community radio network.